And now it's time for Coffee Talk and Confessional Christian Conversation. This is the Cafe Solar Podcast with your host, Christopher Hogan. I'm Christopher Hogan, and you're listening to the Cafe Solar Podcast. Today in the cafe, we have a bonus episode where we will join a Bible class held at Our Savior Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. It's part of a Genesis study written and led by Dr. Lawrence L. White, who is Our Savior's senior pastor. Look for the link to a PDF of Pastor White's study in the description. Well, in today's lesson, Pastor White picks up the lesson with Genesis 1-1, Now the earth was formless and empty. You'll learn about the linking word used in subsequent verses following Genesis 1-1 and the significance of that word. Pastor White will discuss the gap theory popularized by the Schofield Reference Bible. And you will also find out what the Hebrew phrase tohu wabohu means and how it summarizes the unsuitable condition of matter in its preliminary form. As the lesson goes on, Pastor White will expound on the text darkness was over the surface of the deep, explaining the Hebrew word tehom. Finally, Pastor White will address the Trinitarian and baptismal connection found in the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Be sure to like, follow, subscribe, and share on all your favorite social media to help spread God's word and truth. So, with all that out of the way, let's get started with this bonus episode of Genesis, the beginning of all things, a study of creation in Scripture. He is the source of everything else that is. And thus, when he proceeds to make the earth, the uh, word the Genesis text uses is create. Create, barach in Hebrew, means to make something out of nothing. Uh, We use that word much more broadly in English, but in the Bible, uh, create means to make something from nothing. If an artist is going to create a great masterpiece of a painting, and he doesn't get canvas and paint, he just has to bring it into being out of nothing, if we're going to use the word in a biblical sense. But that's why he is God. Because before he created, there was nothing but him. And away we go. As our paltry little minds try to comprehend things beyond the categories of time and space. So, uh, we go on on the bottom of page 10. And it says, and now the earth was formless and empty. King James says, and the earth was without form and void. This is one of the few instances where I like the new one better than the King James. You know, we, at one point we had a gentleman in the congregation of firm and unshakable convictions who believed that the King James Version was the only inspired word of God. <laughs> kind of like my mother, my grandmother felt about Luther's Bible. But uh, this guy, this old guy would wait outside church until we were done with the lessons. And then he would come into church because we were not using the King James Version. 
It was good enough for Jesus. It was good enough for him, yes. Oh, my. Just, but he agreed with me that there were no cats before the fall. We at least agreed on something. So, the earth was formless and empty. After Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Every sentence begins with the conjunction what in Hebrew, which means and. Uh, this linking word is typically translated in English as and or then. The, the New International Version renders the conjunction now which really doesn't uh, effectively stress the sense of continuity which the original text wants to convey. This is all one ongoing action. From the first, let there be, to, and the Lord saw everything that he had made, that it was good at the end. One ongoing continuous action, a sequence all chronologically linked to the actions which preceded it, all emanating from God. And so action follows upon action as described in the verse preceding it, linked. Why am I making such a point of that? Well, when, when we stop to emphasize something in particular, that's because somebody else has denied it or messed it up. Okay. Uh, we have, which means we do a lot of stopping to emphasize things <laughs> in particular. Because over the centuries, just about everything has been denied or messed up. But uh, those in the last century who have been unwilling to endure the scorn of the world for rejecting the religion of contemporary science, which is Darwinism, and who make an attempt to combine the idea of evolution with the idea of creation. Uh, like to insert a, what they call a gap in between this introductory verse and then everything that follows. And in that gap, we've got the millions and millions and billions and quadrillions and whatever comes next that are needed to make the fantasy of evolution even remotely credible. Uh, even if all these conjunctions weren't here, it is uh, very difficult to imagine why, if we're putting a billion-year gap in there, there isn't some reference to the fact that it's there and what it's there for, as everything else is explained. But uh, so this observation becomes particularly significant in view of the misguided attempt by some conservative Protestants 
to insert a massive gap between the first two verses of Genesis. What we're trying to do is get out of the bind we're in, rejecting the current majority worldview, uh, not recognizing that what passes for science in our world uh, is not science at all, it's just another religion uh, based on unproven and unprovable assumptions. And, uh, you know, people laugh at you when uh, you tell them you don't believe in evolution, you believe in creation. Uh, I suspect for a good many of you, that's only one of a number of reasons why they laugh at you, but that's a different subject for uh, another time. Uh, the gap theory is most prominently advocated in the well-known and very popular Schofield Reference Bible, which is, uh, at least was, I don't, I don't know that it still is, the standard Bible text for our uh, dispensational friends. And the uh, notes in the Bible accommodate that perspective of the end times. But the uh, Schofield Reference Bible suggests that the present universe is God's second attempt. Now, we know all about second attempts. Okay, I was trying to frame a picture last night. It took four attempts <laughs> to get it cut straight enough to fit in the frame. And I remembered that uh, that's why in grade school, the teacher would never let me take part in any of the class science projects because I couldn't cut straight. And now that I can't see either, it's gotten even worse. So uh, uh, took four times to get it square enough to fit in that frame and not look crooked. But uh, they say the first attempt uh, fashioned uh, a world, and after sin ruined that, he did it over again. And that gives us enough time in between, or an opportunity at least, to insert enough time in between the first failed attempt and the second correction to uh, have some negotiating room with, the, uh, with our evolutionist <coughs> friends. But then that would mean what we have now should be perfect, right? Well, they would say what we have now is corrected because human beings are still sinful. God didn't take away sin. It just, we made such a mess of the first one that uh, he, he uh, limited the damages, shall we say. I suppose we can conclude that the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses do not have a corner on the market for manuscripts. That's true. Unfortunately, uh, the uh, market on attempting to make the biblical text more manageable or reasonable for us is unlimited. The most basic confusion in Christianity is discerning the difference between thus saith the Lord and this is what I think. Uh, we tend to overlap those two. And it's usually... This is what I think, so thus saith the Lord. And we'll make the Bible say, 
if we're even interested in such things, most aren't these days. Uh, what we wanted it to say in the first place. So the gap is also designed to provide the flexibility to insert vast geological ages as required by Darwinian evolution, which operates as one of its fundamental dogmas, and they grit their teeth when you call it that, but that's what it is, the principle of uniformity. That is, if you've got rock level, rock layers in uh, the Grand Canyon, and it would take 10 billion years for them to get there if we were going to make a Grand Canyon right now, then the ones that are there took 10 million years, yes. I don't know when the Schofield's reference Bible was written, so could you explain? Early 1900s. So it's been around for a while. The gap was inserted in the early 1900s. Yes, as, well, no, no, that's not where they, they put gap way back. <laughs> no, I know. But, yes, but, uh, that, but that's the time you see when we were having the modernist fundamentalist wars and William Jennings Bryan was defending teaching creation. It's actually what he was defending was not teaching creation, that was universal. What he was defending was, what he was opposing was teaching evolution. And uh, because creation was the norm. Those were the good old days when Fritchie was young <laughs> and rode to school on a horse, both ways. So, uh, <coughs> whenever we try to minimize the pain of coexisting with a world that is godless as people of God, we end up departing from the clear teaching of God's word. The lead article in Christianity Today, last month, I think, was the fact, <laughs> you know, I get Christianity Today on the, on the internet, which means I seldom read it because I can't figure out how to get into it. But nonetheless, uh, since Hooper moved to Louisiana, he sends me all these things on the internet. It's as though he wants to interrupt the Bible class long distance. And uh, his article uh, last week was how intelligent design is becoming more acceptable even in the most conservative Protestant churches. Intelligent design is evolution with God in charge. And uh, which I've always thought was very revealing because that means they're saying the standard evolutionary doctrine is stupid design, aren't they? Or non-intelligent design? This early class is real. <laughs> yes. Is this supposed to first attempt when Lilith would have come in? Could be. I, I've never looked into that. Uh, uh, Lilith in Hebrew mythology is uh, Adam's first wife. And she was a little too much for dummy to handle. And uh, in that scenario, she tried to tempt him, and he said no. And so she was eliminated and uh, became the, uh, the mother of witches and witchcraft and all of that stuff. And suffice it to say, she was a whole lot better looking than Eve. <laughs> 
evil is always depicted as attractive and alluring, and uh, good is always boring and uh, so on, in the world's perspective. So uh, the, uh, the point is, the text seems to go out of its way to rule out such foolishness by connecting every phrase with that conjunction. So that in effect, Genesis 1 is all one sentence in Hebrew, which is difficult to determine because they don't use punctuation in Hebrew. Anyway, with all those little dots and dashes there uh, around everything as it is, uh, periods and commas would just mess things up even more. So while verse 1 has described in the broadest strokes the origin of the most basic components, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, time and space come into existence. Now verse 2 proceeds without delay to the crux of the matter. And we must remember that this is not an abstract scientific or philosophical treatise. We're going to have a lot of questions that aren't going to be answered. Now remember what we said uh, way back when, at some point, about the sufficiency of Scripture. If we need it, it's in there. If we want to know it, and it isn't in there, it's because we don't need it. And if we could remember that principle, you know, that's maybe what we should put up here, get rid of all these maps. And maybe we'd accomplish more ground. Of course, you're thinking, if the preacher didn't digress so much, that uh, the preacher you gave me, he made me do it. So, uh, this isn't a scientific description of how. This is a Hebrew introduction of why. What Genesis is doing is identifying us and defining our relationship with God. And if we were going to talk about how, that would only be a frustrating digression from what the text is really about. Frustrating because we wouldn't understand most of it anyway. And uh, we must be content with that as we approach the word humbly, reverently. So uh, everything which God creates from the vast reaches of the farthest galaxies how can you use the word farthest? I always wonder when I get to this point in others. In reference to the universe, does it have an edge? Think about that. And you'll get ahead. Only the Starship Enterprise knows where the edge is. And anybody under the age of 40 is thinking, why? <laughs> Ah, 
You know, we decided in the Wednesday morning Bible class, uh, the average age of which is significantly higher than this class, uh, that the happiest show in the history of television is the Andy Griffith Show. And the reason why, those of you who are nodding are revealing your age. The, the, the reason why the Andy Griffith Show is the happiest television program there is, is because nobody on that program is married. The only character in the whole show that's married is Otis. <laughs> and he's drunk all the time. <laughs> Think about that too while you're pondering the edge of the universe. Ah, so that's why this entire creation account is meticulously structured to focus upon man. Not because of uh, any prestige or status, but because man is the point and the purpose of everything else that is made. And that includes the vast reaches of the universe, whatever that may mean. Uh, Everything that God made has a role in the existence of the single creature fashioned in his image and after his likeness. And uh, the implications of that are as yet untapped since for all however many thousand years we've been around uh, it took us most of them just to discover there was something out there beyond us and uh, I uh, still have some very conservative the gentleman who was a King James Version only guy also believed the earth was still flat okay and uh And as I told him, I don't care whether it's flat or round, uh, just so I don't fall off, either way. <laughs> so the, the word that the illusions use is anthropocentric. This whole account is centered on anthropos, man, mankind, perhaps we should say, to be politically correct and gender neutral. Uh, it's not centered on males, it's centered on mankind. The stuff of the universe, time and space, has been called into being from nothing. But it is not yet suitable for the purpose for which it was designed. The text reports that the earth was formless and empty. It's, uh, in, in Hebrew, the phrase is tohu wabohu. Uh, and uh, the uh, theology professor entertains for half the class different pronunciations of tohu wabohu. 
And it can become quite entertaining. It's almost like watching Margie sing the spiritual <laughs> Uh, now, when we say the earth, I think we best at this point still understand that term in its broadest sense to refer to what we would call matter, because the earth hasn't been born yet. Uh, we're not talking about... Uh, a distinction between dry land and water or uh, dirt and air or whatever. Uh, I, we're talking about matter. And all of those things fall into the category of matter in one way or another. It's there, but it is not yet ordered for the purpose for which it is to be designed. That design has not yet been implemented. And once again, we remain out of our depth, expressing concepts which are incomprehensible. Uh, what does that mean? Who knows? I don't. And the longer the commentary gets, the less the guy who's writing it knows. But the longer the commentary gets, uh, the more it costs. Yes, dear. To me, that's the difference between the word void and empty. A void is an absence. There's nothing there. Empty right. implies there's something there. It just hadn't been filled yet. There's a container you have to fill. The void is there. It's nothing. Okay. So there's a big difference in those two words, and I. I I can see why KJV would choose void. Because he hadn't created it yet. Okay. And you're talking about the stuff of the universe has been called into being, but it was not yet suitable for the purpose. Really? I thought the moment he called it into being, he saw that it was good. Well, it was. So for what it this? needed to be on that first day of creation. So why does it say it was called into being, but it was not yet suitable for the purpose for which it was designed? What? I don't get that. Me neither. <laughs> Nor anyone else in the history of theology. He's got his, when you're going to build a house, yeah. you get the raw material. You have it all delivered, and so on and so forth. But your house isn't built yet. It's not suitable. For habitation. And that's God exactly does what When he wanted light, he created light and saw that it was good. Darling, if you are presumptuous enough to tell God how he should have done this. No, I'm telling you what the problem says. The problem is, <laughs> see, see what I said earlier? Thus said the Lord, this is what I think. No, it's not what I think. God's, it's in the Bible. This is not in the Bible. What? What I wrote? Is not in the Bible. <laughs> Elders, <laughs> what has happened to the Lutheran Church? <laughs> Their Herr Pastor was not questioned in the day, as we say. What it says, it was empty. Void means empty. No, it's not. 
I'll bet if we were to get my big fancy Oxford two-volume $500 dictionary out, you'd find 70 different meanings for each of those words. The point is, at this moment, we're still dealing with things we cannot comprehend. Let's leave it at that. So, Let's see where I was here. Planet Earth. Uh, more than a specific reference to planet Earth, which doesn't exist yet. Uh, God did not merely create this planet as a home for man. All the universe, as many galaxies as there may be, are created included in the perfect environment which God fashioned for humankind. Again, we want to know, well, how is that going to have anything to do with us? Let's wait and see. Uh, I suppose it could be argued that it's just there to make the evening sky beautiful. Uh, and at that point, the more practical person says, well, no, that's ridiculous. This justifies the space program. We need to get out there and spend gazillions of dollars figuring out what God has in store for us uh, in everything else he created for us. And that's okay. But at this point, God has not yet brought the raw material to its final state. It is formless and empty. These onomatopoetic, that is, words that sound like what they mean. Hebrew words summarize the unsuitable condition of matter in its preliminary form. The combination of the two rhyming themes, terms, sorry, reinforces the point, much like our English words helter-skelter, or hodgepodge, or willy-nilly, or Shilly shally, or whatever. Uh, the word tohu occurs 20 times in the Old Testament. Most frequently, I remember how we work with the Bible. We start with the individual words themselves. Then we look at other texts to see what, how those words are used and what their various meanings may be. Then we look at the specific grammar of the phrases and sentences in which those words occur. The immediate context. And we look at the, all those sneaky little words, prepositions and conjunctions and so on and so forth that connect them and give them their meaning. So you're not just getting the vocabulary list that you get when you hit translate on the internet. Then we look at the broader context. Okay, outside of that sentence, what's going on in that paragraph? And what's around that paragraph? And we go broad, slowly, meticulously out from those individual words through the various contexts as narrowly as possible 
and ultimately to uh, the shrift gods, the entirety of Scripture. We look at all the texts that use those same words or talk about those same things. And uh, what we're trying to do in a most conscientious way is to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture rather than me concluding what I would like to think based on an isolation of words or phrases or sentences or whatever from one another. That's not easy. That's not fast. It's hard, time-consuming effort. That's Bible study. Sitting around a group and telling one another, one another what we feel is not Bible study. And yet that's what passes for Bible study in most places uh, these days. Because uh, word for word, sentence for sentence, paragraph for paragraph, and so forth, that's boring. We don't do that anywhere else. I don't get to talk about me. Me is what I want to talk about. Actually, we don't study the Bible to talk. We start to talk. We study the Bible to listen. And that means we have to do the kind of thing we're doing right now so that Cindy will understand the difference between empty and void. Okay? Mike? Well, I think the problem is that you're using the NIV translation probably to because the ESV has void, and I think King James would do. Well, the NIV has empty. Yeah. But, but, but the ESV has voice. Oh, does it? Okay. Yeah. Well, but, I think King James has voice, too. Yes, King James has voice. Yeah. Uh, so, the argument about empty versus void is kind of related to the... Oh, absolutely. Translation. And it's, you know, it's... <laughs> when the King James Version was translated centuries ago, English was a very different language than it is today. And the words they used then, which we still use today, are in many cases have shifted in meaning since then. Uh, and that complicates communication. The, uh, the only advantage that we may have in dealing with the text of Scripture is that both Biblical Hebrew and New Testament, Koine Greek, are dead languages, which nobody's using them today. So they aren't evolving. They're static. But the trick is then to go back and figure out what they originally meant with the limited information that we have to determine that, specifically Mr. Hall filling in for Mr. Hooper. Just a little... Uh comment on the word void. Thank you, Cindy. the U.S. Navy, on board ship, there are lots of little spaces and kind of hatches into these spaces. And on the outside, very, very large. Mumble pit. more loudly, please. Very large pit on the outside to get into these spaces is the word void. That means that space is empty. There's nothing in there. I don't understand it. Well, if I had known you were going to agree with me, I wouldn't have made fun of you when I called on you. <laughs> <laughs> and the space is void. 
Hang in there, guys. That's the Navy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I heard a pastor's briefing last week, and one of the speakers was the Army General who set up the Green Berets, and uh, he gets up there, and he says, uh, are there any Marines in the audience? You know, and these are all preachers. And you, of course, get a couple of hoorahs. He said, okay, I'll use very small words to speak slowly. <laughs> He's an army general. So, uh, the word tohu is uh, used 21 times, most often in Isaiah. Isaiah 45 seems to be the most direct parallel. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. Notice the link between the fact of creation and the identity of God. And that link means that once you dump creation, which most of Christendom has done, you can no longer correctly understand who God is or who you are in relationship. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. <clears throat> and list of other texts there. Although this, uh, although used much less frequently, <coughs> only three times, in the uh, Old Testament, Bohu carries a very similar connotation in all three of its biblical occurrences here in Genesis, once in Isaiah and once in Jeremiah. It's linked with Tohu. Speakers like those kind of sounds because they get the audience's attention. God will stretch out over Edom the measuring line of chaos. Tohu, and the plumb line of desolation. Bohu. We're beginning to get the sense that to be complete, the creation requires order. It has to be specifically structured for its purpose. Anarchy and chaos are the opposite of that order and design. And I looked at the earth, Jeremiah 4, and it was formless and empty. And at the heavens, and their light was gone. What the combination of these words conveys is a sense of desolation and disorder. At this stage, matter is not yet ready to carry out the purpose for which it was created, namely human habitation. The creative cosmos was a tri-universe of time, space, and matter. Initially, there were no stars or planets, only the basic matter component of the time-space-matter continuum. The elements which were to be formed into planet Earth 
were first only elements, not yet formed, but nevertheless comprising the basic matter. I don't know what that means. But basically you will notice when these brilliant men are trying to deal with these things, they spend more time telling us what it's not mm -hmm. than they do telling us what it is because we can't understand what it is. Hebrew scholar Umberto Casuto, an Italian Jew, obviously, uh, at, of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. During his lifetime, uh, he passed a few decades back, uh, regarded as probably the finest Hebrew scholar in the world. I wrote a two-volume commentary on Genesis. Uses the image of the potter and his clay to describe the sense of the text. Just as a potter, when he wishes to fashion a beautiful vessel, takes first a lump of clay and places it on his wheel in order to mold it according to his wish, so the Creator first prepared for himself the raw material of the universe, with a view to giving it afterwards order and life, and the whole material was, here you go, and undifferentiated, that's a negative definition, unorganized, <laughs> negative definition, confused, and lifeless agglomeration. Hope he spoke Hebrew better than he spoke English. Kasuto also argued, by the way, that within the Hebrew text of the Bible, there is a numeric rhythm that you can, if you watch the Hebrew words and letters carefully enough, that you can uh, discern. And uh, Jeff tells me that the same thing is true in the music of Bach. Uh, that when in music school they're getting them, their students ready for their improvisation text, a test where you just don't have music in front of you, you sit down and you improvise, which is what some people do even when they're looking at a sheet of music. But nonetheless, uh, Bach's music is so ordered that you can identify its pattern with numbers. Casuto said the same thing was true of the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. And uh, a number of his disciples have followed up on that and are working on it today. Uh, they are looked at with scorn. They couldn't do that with Casuto. He was too famous. By the academic community because the pattern is the same in the five books of Moses as it is in Psalms, or as it is in Isaiah, uh, which would be impossible if they were written by different authors. I don't know whether that means it was empty or void, but nonetheless. So, uh, so now the issue of organization, structure, order for a purpose has been introduced. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The chaos of the unformed matter is further emphasized in this phrase. 
The natural forces which govern and order our universe had not yet been created. All is motionless and still. Cloaked in impenetrable darkness, the total absence of light which did not yet exist. Most of us have never been in total darkness, particularly here in the city. Now, you might get closer to that out in the country, but there is still some light, even where we find it to be the darkest thing uh, we've ever experienced. This phrase recalls another of the great assertions of God's uniqueness and absolute sovereignty from the book of Isaiah. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create the darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Talk about absolute. That's absolute. The NIV's translation positions the darkness over the surface of the deep. The Hebrew noun tehom, derived from a root which means to resound or to echo, typically refers to the surging depths of the ocean, and we still use the word that way in contemporary English. At this point, however, the formation of the earth and the separation of the land and the seas has not yet occurred. The reference must, therefore, again, be understood more broadly to refer to the vast conglomerate of matter. And I want to know how vast. What did it look like? And where was it? And so forth. And uh, the picture presented is one of basic material elements sustained in a pervasive watery matrix throughout the darkness of space. Even the prepositional phrase over the surface would seem to be anachronistic, like putting an automobile on the streets of ancient Rome. How can an undifferentiated conglomerate of matter have a surface? I don't know. I think we better just leave it there. Uh, the Hebrew word panim means faces and carries the sense that's the word for surface here. And we talk about the, uh, the uh, surface of the water or the surface of the land in that kind of sense. Uh, and seen is often translated as in the presence of, as we would use the phrase face to face. That would seem to be a better translation in the context. The sense of the passage is then that the chaotic mass of primordial matter was surrounded by a vast sea of darkness. Henry Morris places the meaning of the text in the context of science. Elements of matter and molecules of water were present 
but not yet energized. The force of gravity was not yet functioning to draw such particles together into a coherent mass with a definite form. Neither were there electromagnetic forces yet in operation, and everything was in darkness. The physical universe had come into existence, and everything was still and dark. No form, no motion, no light. The book of Proverbs offers an intriguing glimpse of this primordial mass shrouded in endless darkness using the same Hebrew terminology. The reference is to part of a triumphant song of praise from the Word of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, as the personification of divine wisdom. Jesus exalts, The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before the world began, when there were no oceans, I was given birth. From where... From there were, when there were no springs abounding with water before the mountains were settled in place before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the earth or its fields or any of the dust of the world, I was there when he set the heavens in place. When he marked out the horizons on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary, so that the waters could not overstep his command. And when he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was the craftsman at his side. And so we will see it was in the beginning. Uh, my advisor at the seminary was, it was an Old Testament professor. And uh, a man of limited patience and Lutheresque flexibility in his uh, expressions. Okay. He died in the middle of my first year there, uh, having a fit about something, but uh, nonetheless, he was teaching out this text in that Genesis class, I'm told this was one of the legends of the seminary in Springfield. And, uh, uh, a student in the freshman year kept interrupting him and saying, you know, well, but I think it means this, and I read that it means that. And finally, Dr. Nauman stopped and he put his arms on his hips and he says, Was you there, Charlie? <laughs> well, none of us was there. And uh, so they, uh, an appropriate sense of humility is necessary in studying these texts. The Proverbs uh, text uses the same Hebrew noun, tehom, in verses 24 and 27. When there were no oceans, I was given birth. When he marked out the horizons on the face of the deep. In the second phrase, the word horizons, shug in Hebrew, refers to the circular line at the limit of man's vision, which indicates the curvature the sphericity, did I put too many symbols in there? Sphere, no. Sphericity, the roundness of the earth. Thus does our Lord affirm his divine pre-existence, reminding us that before this planet came to be, he was. Peter also alludes to the primordial waters of creation 
that they deliberately forgot that long ago by God's word the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and with water. As I said earlier, uh, this text is most critically important for defining who God is and who we are in relationship to him. If we are independent beings in our own right, then there is no basis for a relationship with him. Uh, we could, as the devil suggested to me, be our own gods. But the fact of the matter is, we are not independent existences. We come from him. He made us and everything about us and around us. And therefore, there is the parameter of a creature-creator relationship between us in which somebody's in charge and somebody's not. And uh, we know, if we study the word, who is who in that in charge or not. But without it, we don't. And that's why the abandonment of the biblical doctrine of creation is so critically important for everything else in Christian theology. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Hebrew words Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God have elicited considerable discussion among commentators. In the Hebrew language, the word ruach, spirit, is also the word, the word for wind, breath, and ultimately life. It, its etymology proceeds, as is often the case in the evolution, if you will, of verbal meanings from the most simple to more complex. And so originally, ruach simply means air in motion uh, in any context. From there, not having all the fancy equipment that we have today, the ancients aptly observed that air in motion was equivalent, that breath was equivalent with life. When the air in motion stopped, it was time to bury him before he started to smell. And uh, so spirit goes from air in motion to breath to life and ultimately then to the source of life, which is God. And uh, by derivative use, that life spirit from God is, Peter's talking about baptism here, and water and life, and making that connection uh, in, a, in a very uh, beautiful and powerful way. And, uh, saying that just as the Spirit of God moved on the face of the great deep, that uh, so the Spirit of God moves and works in and out of the water, which then, of course, leads us to an argument about whether the Spirit of God is all three or just three. The third 
is this just the Holy Spirit or is this the uh, entirety of God? And uh, you get, we get the image, at least I always did, and uh, you see it reflected in that old woodcut. And I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know if I would use in my Bible uh, woodcuts carved by Johann Teufel. Uh, in German, the word Teufel means devil. So, but at any rate, you see him on top of the water, and he's making waves. They're ruffling the water. So, uh, I guess in this text, it's sort of impossible to determine. Those of us who are more traditional would like to understand it as the third member of the Trinity, because then we have all three. God, the Father... Christ, the Word, and the Spirit hovering upon the water. Uh, and the Church Fathers used that, that uh, threesome as the argument for the Trinity being taught in the Old Testament from the opening verses of Genesis 1. And that is certainly not an impossible understanding Although, and who would have said, you know, again, who would have said that uh, we would know that every time it says God said, that's Jesus, if John hadn't told us. Again, humble. We'll stop there. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of the Cafe Sola podcast. I hope you were blessed and edified by Pastor White's lesson from his study, Genesis, the beginning of all things, a study of creation in scripture. More of this and other studies from Pastor White and Our Savior Lutheran in Houston, Texas can be found at osl.cc. All you have to do is select study and then click on Bible studies. I'm Christopher Hogan, and I want to thank you for spending some time in the cafe with me today. God's blessings on your day.